Please turn to Psalm 19. Last week I told you that C.S. Lewis called this psalm perhaps the greatest of all the psalms and also one of the greatest lyrics of all time. And the more you ponder it, ponder its poetic features alone on which we cannot dwell here for obvious reasons, you may be convinced that this was no overstatement, but he knew what he was talking about. Let me read Psalm 19 one more time, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent of Hidden faults, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be perfect and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. I faintly remember many, many years ago I shared with you that uh, as a little boy I had two recurring nightmares. One of them was about a witch capturing little children, hanging them up by their feet, and the children would then await the oven as it is in Hansel and Gretel, a story that never failed to impress me. The other one is like this, and it is, it is absurd, but um, it tells you something about the angst with which I grew up back then. I was taken captive by North American Indians. By the way, when we were little children playing cowboy and Indians, never occurred to us as racial profiling. Today, you may be called um, uh, for racial profiling because your children put on an Indian costume. Well, we did it all the time, and we loved it, and we loved Indians, too. We had romantic notions about the lives of Indians, but that's what we did. And so my dream was like this. 
I was captured by North American Indians, and I had my hands tied to my back, and they forced me to gain life, to be set free, to walk across a chasm on a narrow trunk, a tree trunk. If my steps would fail, there I go. And this dream kept coming again and again and again. Well, here's a riddle for you, little children. Think about this. What is solid? Running its course with unhindered strength and joy, yet touching and transforming all things. If David had cast the first half of Psalm 19 in the form of a riddle, it would be like this. The sun's steadfast rule from heaven touches and transforms everything. And these two qualities, two qualities, the solidity of the sun, the strength of the sun, and its transforming power, these two qualities are now seen in the second half in God's law, making this double analogy key to understanding Psalm 19. The sun is the most solid, enduring witness in the heavens, rules the day. For as long as time continues, you will never fail to see the sun rising and setting in predictable fashion. There are many things that you would count a disturbance in this creation because it is a fallen creation. The sun will never fail to rise and it will never fail to set. It is solid, the most solid and enduring witness in the heavens. And what does it do? It transforms life on this planet Without the sun, where would we be? And there is nothing that is hidden from its life-giving energy. There is nothing, says the psalmist, hidden from its radiating heat. And so is the law of God to man, to us. It is solid and it is enduring. Jesus said that it will remain, come what will, for as long as the earth stands. And it gives light. And it gives light. And it warms the heart. And it searches the heart like the rays of the sun piercing every crack and cranny. So this is how the two parts of this psalm relate to each other. They were made to correspond to each other. And eventually, you hear David closing this psalm with these words, my rock and my redeemer. They are easily missed, but they are perfect, perfectly set. Because he chose these twin attributes of God, rock and redeemer, because they so buttress his characterization of both the Son and in particular the law of God. God is solid like a rock. You can build your life on him. In fact, this is what you must do. And he has transformative, redemptive power. He can redeem even from the grave. It is no wonder then that his law is also solid and transformative. It has transforming, life-giving power like God. Well, let's begin with the Lord's 
transforming power. And I will set four highlights, four highlights, and um, this is the first. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, or as David puts it, bringing back the soul. The law of the Lord is perfect. So I ask you, what is perfection? How do you think of perfection? Lacking nothing? Not being able to take away anything? Not being able to add anything? That's a good way of thinking of it. But perhaps creation as it is here, it may come to our help. Consider the conditions that must be met on planet Earth to support life. And when you do, then you approach perfection. I know it is not always so easy to see, but the degree of what scientists call fine-tuning, the degree of coordination of characteristics that are necessary for life to 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 uh, to exist they are so overwhelming that life itself must be considered a miracle nothing short of a miracle and when scientists calculate the likelihood of any planet supporting life the odds are less than 1 in 10 to the 73rd power and that's a number that no one can see. But imagine, imagine a schoolboy misbehaving. And then his teacher tells him, get up to the board, take a piece of chalk, and write a one followed by 73 zeros. That's the odds that are stacked against life on this planet or any other planet. It's an astronomical sum. It is absurd. So I ask you, how is it even possible? That earth beats these absurd odds. How is it even possible that earth beats these incredible odds? How can earth support an atmosphere in which life is not only possible and make tenuous steps towards organic life perhaps a little fearful, but rather thrives. Life thrives in a bewildering array. And collaboration of details from astronomical processes, let's say the size of the moon, for example, or the fact that we only have one moon, which is very unusual, and the distance between Earth and Moon, very minor by comparison to other planets. All of these things, together with the planetary characteristics of Earth, all the way down to the subatomic level. How is it even possible that there is life on this planet? Well, here's the answer. <laughs> it's because creation speaks of God's perfection. Our planet supports life, and I doubt that there is any other. 
our planet supports life the way it does because in a way, even though it's fallen now, it's perfect. It was made to support life. And for that, it had to be just right, perfect. And you can't take anything away, and you can't add anything. If you do, you will soon introduce imbalance. And imbalance continues to reinforce itself and has consequences, often destructive. But this is it. Our planet supports life because it is perfect the way God made it. Think of it. Think of order, symmetry, and beauty that cannot be explained in words, but it is tangible. It is real. Think of all these three. Order, symmetry, beauty, like a dance. A dance that follows patterns that you can't trace, but is never reducible to mathematical equations. It's perfect. So is the law of God. So is the word of God. And that is why, you see, that is why it can give life to the soul. It can cause your soul to return to God. As David says, it possesses the life-giving, creative power of God in a word, perfection. The law of the Lord is perfect. Have you been ignoring the word of your God? Have you been stepping away from the word of your God? Have you been ignoring it for weeks, for months, maybe even for this past year or longer? Take this to heart, brother and sister. We all have need of this. Turning away from God's commandment is leaving the Spirit's atmosphere where you thrive to enter into a cold space, an uninhabitable space of death and darkness. The law of the Lord is perfect. Alone it can give life. Here's number two. The law or the testimony of the Lord is sure or certain, making wise the simple. Like firm steps on a yellow brick road. Firm steps on a yellow brick road. The testimony shows you how life works, how you must live and walk one step after the other. You may call this wisdom for dummies, since David here mentions the simpleton. It makes wise the simple. In wisdom literature, the simpleton is a character who is not firmly committed. He's weak. He's up for the taking. And because he is weak and he is not firmly committed, he is easily deceived and led astray. He's pliable. But if he applies himself 
to the wisdom of God's Word, to the discipline of God's wisdom, he will grow. He will grow. Then the simpleton will become a wise man. God's Word makes you wise for salvation, Paul said to Timothy. And it shows you the way in which you prosper. It shows you the way that you may prosper in it. The law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord is sure making wise the simple. Number three, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. How does God's law cause joy in your heart? And if you are honest, we do not associate these two terms, do we now? Joy and law. How does God's law solicit joy in my heart? But think of a craftsman or maybe an artist. He works hours and days and weeks and months and maybe even years on his masterpiece, his crowning achievement of life. Every now and then he stops and he chuckles to himself with satisfaction, saying to himself, fine work, my young friend, fine work. Like beautiful embroidery put together stitch by stitch with utmost care and precision, or like a musical piece that moves your heart. It draws you out. There is the light. There is joy in order and in beauty when they are wedded in perfect union. And you see, this is why the law of the Lord gives joy to the heart. God's law reflects the beauty of God's mind and his moral beauty. fills your heart. It ravishes your heart. It fills your heart with joy. Once, once you recognize it, once you see it. And so, my friends, God's words also have transforming power in shaping your feelings. It does shape your feelings and in shaping your desires. And this is number four. God's word gives life, wisdom, and joy. It also shapes your desires. Notice what David says. These words are more to be desired than gold. And they are sweeter than honey. Sometimes we struggle because the culture that gave rise to these words or in which these words were written is a little bit different from our own, sometimes very different. How many of you make much of honey? Honey is no big deal for us because we people have a sugar overload. With every soda can, we can deliver more than our daily intake of sugar. Honey is no big deal to us. 
or the ancient people, they all had a sweet tooth. They didn't have many sweet things, and so for them, honey was a very special treat. And honey is an acquired taste, like God's Word. You have to taste it first before you know how good it is. You have to taste it. And this is how it is with God's Word. This this law, the Word of God, is more desirable than honey. It's sweeter than honey. It is more desirable than gold, or we would say more desirable than money. Give me money. Why? Because it transforms your desires. And it aligns your desires with God's desires. This is why Jesus in John 14, 14 says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it for you. And this is not a prosperity gospel where when all is said and done, it's all about you. You rubbing the cosmic bankier the right way and he will make you rich. He will give you a bigger house and a faster car and more success because you do the right thing before God and he cannot help but do what you ask him to do, what you want him to do. No, it's not all about you. The gospel is about God and his will and when your will aligns with Jesus' will, he will give you the desire of your heart. So it is. And in this way, understand this, in this way, the keeping of God's word holds great reward, says David. What reward? Well, there is more than one to be had, but here is one for you. Keeping God's word means that the word bestows a sense of true self. I grew up without God's word, and I never knew who I was. (laughs) And it takes a long time even for Christians to figure this out. Who the heck am I? What's wrong with me? What am I doing? If this doesn't make me better, stronger, wiser, what am I doing? Who am I? Hmm? So there it is. The Word of God bestows a true sense of self, an identity as God has willed it for you, as God meant it for you. The Word shapes your desires so that you can image God because you are God's image. And the more you see this, the more you are established in this way. You also see it. In David's negative statement, don't you? He says, moreover by them is your servant warned. It's the same. It's only the flip side of the coin. Not only do God's words align your desires with God's good desires, they also correct evil desires, wrong desires, desires that go haywire. They go off in the wrong direction because they harm you. So God's word corrects evil desires. All right, well, these are four samples of the transforming power of God's law. It gives life, wisdom, joy, 
and it shapes your desires. It does all these things and much, much more. But let's now talk about the second aspect that David highlights in this psalm. The solidity, the eternal, or I should say the eternality of God's law. In order to possess transforming power, life-giving power, the law must itself be solid and unchangeable. In other words, the law must mirror the person of God. It must mirror God. God transforms everything, but he is transformed by no one. God makes all things. He is made by no one. God brings dead things and people to life. But he has life and he is life in himself. He never changes. And David says, so is the fear of the Lord. That's a synonym for the law of God. The fear of the Lord is a wisdom expression that refers to the right way of living under God's rule. Knowing your place under God's rule who is in heaven and you are on earth. The fear of the Lord is the proper way to live before God in this world. To know your place in this life. And to be content because God has shown you where you belong. So, the fear of the Lord is clean. Clean? What does that mean? Well, maybe it's helpful to think of the opposite. Unclean. The fear of the Lord is unmixed, unadulterated. That's why it endures forever, says David. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Crystal clear. Clear as a crystal. Unmixed. Unsoiled. Untouched. Unadulterated. Clean. The fear of the Lord teaching the proper way to live is not subject to deterioration. It is not subject to decay. Anything that is mixed in this world will break down and decay. Some things break down sooner than others. Some things are more durable than others. But all things break down. Mixed things do not hold together. There's only one union that holds forever. It's the union between Christ and his people. It cannot be broken. No more than you can separate Son, Father, and Holy Spirit. But anything else in this world that is brought together in some way, it may hold for a while, but not forever. Not meant to. Anything that is mixed breaks down and decays. But the words of the Lord are pure, clean words, unmixed like silver, refined in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. That means to perfection. Perfection. There you have it again. God's words remain forever because they are pure as God. And on account of their purity, 
Therefore now they can purify us. If they wouldn't be pure, they couldn't. But now they are pure and they can. Yes, they do. Likewise, their attributes, true and righteous, are permanent and inherent. God's law has intrinsic validity. Irrespective of what you think of the law or what people say of the law, the law has value in itself that can't be diminished and you can't add to it either. Again, the law of the Lord is perfection. And this enduring quality is prerequisite to transform. You may think of fools. Excuse me, not fools, but tools. <laughs> See what goes on in my head? It is scary at times. You think of tools. Think of tools. A hammer, for example. A hammer must be harder than metal to beat it into shape. Or a chisel, another tool. Chisel has to be harder than stone in order to convert it into the desired image, a statue or a face of some kind. So God's law is both solid and transformative. And it is transformative because it is solid. More solid than anything created. It gives life, it gives wisdom, it gives joy, it shapes your desires because it is eternal. And it ultimately portrays a real person who is eternal, who does not change, who is solid like a rock, and who possesses transformative life-giving power. You can say, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day long because it whispers the name Jesus Christ. If you only limit yourself to the Torah, as David did, he thought of the five books of Moses, the five books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You hear the name Jesus Christ whispered in every part, through every ritual, every sacrifice, every command, all the features of Israel's sanctuary, all the characters of the Pentateuch, good or evil, they all have something to say in some way about the way of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. Take the two chief qualities of the law as David sees them here, solidity and transformative power, and you see where they come from in the life of the Word that was made flesh. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it is on display in everything that you hear about Jesus in the New Testament. He never changed, even though he was weak. He was in the flesh. God was in Christ. And he was a real human being. He was weak like you and I. And he was solid. He did not change. Case in point, he never succumbed 
He never succumbed to temptation of any kind. He could be famished, low on sugar, as some of you are, and still profess, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That's priority, and it remains so. Like the sun that runs its course every day, he did not change. He did not falter. He said, I have a course to finish, and that's my joy, to finish it to the glory of the Father, and no one will take this away from me. Jesus also was not um, impressed. He wasn't swayed by people's flatteries. When they saw his miracles and they ate bread that Jesus produced virtually from nothing, they praised him. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all people. He did not need any man's testimony because he himself knew what was in man. He didn't judge by the sight of the eye. He didn't decide by the hearing of the ear. He never failed to deal in righteousness and in solid truth. He never faltered. The Spirit of the Lord rested upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. He was that in person. And the master tempter himself had nothing on him in all of his enticements. And Jesus never took his baits. He set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. Governed by the single impulse to see God his Father glorified in his life and in his death. He put his hands to the plow and never looked back. He put truth around his waist like a belt. And he remained steadfast until the end. He couldn't be moved because he is the exact imprint of God's character. He couldn't move. He couldn't change. You couldn't change him. He is the exact imprint of God's character. He, in fact, was, or shall I say is, David's rock, solid. But he was also the radiancy of God's glory. The radiance of God's glory like the sun in its blazing heat, transforming everything that he touched. When Peter first caught a glimpse of him, after a miraculous catch of fish, they had toiled all night and caught nothing. And Jesus said, oh, throw the net on the right side of the boat. Let's see what happens. So they did, and they brought fish home that they had never seen before. And Peter withered in his heat, saying, Depart from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. And Jesus said, You're not going to get rid of me so easily, Peter. Don't be afraid. If I wanted to destroy you, you'd be dead already. From now on, you'll be catching fish, or rather men. You'll be catching men. 
And you see, this was only the beginning of the days of the Son of Man in which he healed sick people of every kind. He gave sight to the blind. He made the lame to walk. He raised dead people from their coffin or their grave. And he subdued demons. Wherever he went, there was a trail of miracles that spoke of the inbreaking of the reign of God. And he gave sanity, sanity for nightmares. And he told people the words, the words of the kingdom of God, like no one had ever spoken of it before with authority and not like the scribes. One look of his face could tell you more about God than many words that we speak. One gesture of his could confound you, teach you, correct you, win your heart for God. And this is what he professed. They didn't come to call the righteous. If I wanted to call righteous people, I wouldn't come to this place. I came to call sinners to repentance. And this brings us now to David's closing prayer, verses 12 through 13. This is a prayer for redemption from sin. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults or sins. Keep your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be perfect. This is the same word that was used for the law. The law of the Lord is perfect. Perfect and innocent of great transgression. Now this distinction between unintentional or hidden sins and presumptuous sins, this distinction comes from the law itself. It teaches this distinction. And when David says, declare me innocent of unintentional or hidden sins, he's asking for forgiveness. This is a way of saying, forgive me for sins that I don't know about, but I suspect there are many to forgive. And he asks God, to preserve him, to keep him from high-handed iniquity on the other end of the spectrum of sin. Because David knows that God can forgive and God does forgive every kind of sin. But this prayer is here for two reasons. Number one, David knows that the word the law is God's redemptive agent, God's redemptive tool. This is the agent that he uses to redeem. David knew this. Even as Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is good for nothing. And the words that I have spoken to you, they are Spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. The supreme display of the transformative power of God's word is in redemption. Well, yes, of course it is. It is one thing, and I speak in a flippant fashion, what do I know about these things? Next to nothing. 
but I venture to say it is one thing for God to create from nothing. But can God also take what is screwed up and ruined and unclean and mixed and perverted and make it clean so that you wouldn't even know? Yes, yes, even so. God can do this, and he does it. Jesus spoke the words of God like no one has ever spoken before. But Jesus is also the word from God. He is the word from God. And a word that does not merely judge, but a word that redeems your soul. The fullness of God. The fullness of the Father's character is seen in Jesus, the Word of God, in person, minus nothing. Minus nothing. Nothing got lost in the transformation when the Word became flesh. You beheld the glory of the only Son from the Father. That's the glory, the ray of the Son, the glory of God Himself. And he is the message from the Father, a living message that gives life to the dead. Once the Word made the world from nothing, now the Word became part of the world to walk and to live in it, to walk on it like a stage and there to die for us and to conquer death by rising from death. In short, to accomplish our redemption from the curse of sin. So now you see, he is David's rock and he is his redeemer. But is he yours? If he is your redeemer, then he declares you innocent, innocent and blameless. This is my hope, and that's my privilege, and that's your hope and your privilege, and the hope and the privilege of all people who call God their rock and their redeemer. No less. You have forgiveness, and you have peace with God through Jesus Christ, and you will be vindicated, and you will be glorified in Christ who kept the law for you perfectly without fail and who canceled your guilt, that negative value that you accrue in the course of every day and in the course of your whole life, canceled, silenced. And like the heavens declaring God's glory, you can now begin to do the same, to give glory to God. There's only one difference between the heavens or the sun and us. And this is the second reason why David closes with this prayer. We can't glorify God unless first we are redeemed, purified, made pure by faith in His Word, the Word of the Gospel. And the last verse of 19 shows it too. 
It has often been viewed as a nice postscript, David. Nicely done. It says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be for delight in your sight. This is no mere postscript, brothers and sisters. This is not an addendum. And this is not even a nice way to close out a song, though it is. No, these words, they connect with verse 1. They echo verse 1, the heavens declaring the glory of God, speaking words of delight, and just so, David... David's words are like music in God's ears. A sweet aroma, a pleasing sacrifice, ascribing glory to his rock and to his redeemer. God's word, my friends, is solid like a rock and it has transformative redemption redemptive power. And as you can see, David's words were purified. David's words were redeemed. They were shaped so that he himself became a tool and an agent declaring God's surpassing fame. May God's solid word transform us. May God's solid word conform us to his son's image so that we would become useful instruments in the hands of our rock and our redeemer. Because the tools of a carpenter assembled for a meeting in the shop. The hammer was elected clerk but soon he had to hear the other tools demanding his resignation because he had been too noisy and too rough. Deeply hurt, the hammer protested. Well, then the slicer has to go too. He is superficial and flat. The slicer then accused the drill of being boring. And the drill found fault with the screw because she never stopped turning. But the screw pointed the finger at the measuring tape. He comes only to judge and to criticize. And everyone has to cater to him. And the measuring tape badmouthed the sandpaper, saying, We ain't got no use for the abrasive kind. Get him out of here. But while the tools grumbled, the carpenter came to the shop, tied an apron around his waist, and began to work with his tools, creating a pulpit from which God's glory is declared. What is God's word doing with you And what are you doing with God's word? Let's pray. Our Father, 
Your law is perfect. It, it gives life. It gives wisdom, joy, and it shapes our desires. It's solid like a rock, and it transforms the whole person. We have only begun to understand this truth as your truth sanctifies us and works in us. Now, I pray for every one of us, especially for me, that you would never stop working, but urge us on to pursue holiness. Let your word be powerful to this end. And I pray for anyone who has yet to be purified by faith in your good news, that today may be the day when that person breaks before you, confesses sin, and receives forgiveness in the name of the Word made flesh of Jesus Christ. In Him we boast, and in Him is our glory. Amen.